Holy Week is a fascinating time in Jerusalem. I lived there for a couple of years in my early 20s, and I can still remember the energy and the excitement that come with this time of year. Church bells are ringing in all sorts of tones and rhythms. The tiny streets in the old city are crowded with pilgrims from all over the world. It seems like you're always scooting to one side of the road or the other to make way for a procession. And there is no better day for a procession than Palm Sunday. It is sort of the main attraction on this day, following a route something like the one that Jesus likely took, from Bethany on the Mount of Olives, down a winding road that passes churches and places for prayer along the way, and finally enters the old city through a gate in the walls not far from the site of the temple. I joined in when I lived there, of course, along with several thousand of my closest friends. It was a madhouse, an enormous group of people, many holding palm branches purchased from vendors along the way. A group that large does not move quickly on a narrow, winding road. So even though the route doesn't cover all that great a distance, it took a long time, the better part of the afternoon, as I remember. Songs would break out occasionally from one group or another, and anticipation began to build as we neared the city. The Lion's Gate is narrow. It's just a small opening in the city wall, so it served as a bottleneck for this huge group of people. The crowd waiting outside that gate then began to build as time went on. Everywhere you looked, palm branches were held high. There were cries of Hosanna from every direction. I'm sure somebody had brought a drum and was beating away on it. The atmosphere was just electric, full of anticipation, not unlike being in the crowded stands at a really big, rowdy sporting event. And I remember thinking at the time, all right, I get it. I get Palm Sunday now. I get why Christians have long called this the triumphal entry. All those people, all that emotion, all that energy, it was enormous and it was impossible not to get caught up in it. That's what it must have been like, I remember thinking. There's just one problem. A reading from the Gospel of Luke doesn't really portray it that way. To begin with, it probably wasn't such a massive group. Sure, Jesus has been drawing crowds and attention, but I'm not sure there's anything in the text to suggest a cast of thousands here. The 12 disciples are there for sure, and almost certainly more besides. It's not hard to imagine the beggar whose sight Jesus had just restored in Jericho, joining in the parade. Maybe Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is there. Probably others who've been captivated by Jesus' teaching and are curious about what he's up to next. Maybe some of the villagers in Bethany, that place where he had close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, have stepped out their front doors and joined in as this procession goes by. So there's certainly a small crowd here, but maybe not more than that. This was likely a ragtag bunch of the sorts of people who always were around Jesus. The poor, the sick, those on the margins of society, those who had found good news in his proclamation of release for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind and freedom for the oppressed. 
Luke doesn't say all the hordes of people in Jerusalem were singing and welcoming him. No, if you read closely, he says, the whole multitude of the disciples were singing and dancing down the mountain. I'm guessing that whole multitude was a whole lot smaller than that enormous crowd that I joined a couple of millennia later. And according to Luke, the procession wasn't actually all that close to Jerusalem itself. It's easy to miss, but here's how Luke puts it. As he was now approaching the path down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully. The action here isn't actually taking place at the city gates. It's not taking place where there would be guards and soldiers and innumerable bystanders hanging around. This parade is somewhere up on the mountain, on a little village road with Jerusalem in the distance down below. So forget that image of thousands of disciples hollering at the city gates. This procession is way up on the hillside. So much has happened in 2,000 years. What began as this small grassroots movement around Jesus has grown in so many ways and picked up so much baggage. So I think it's helpful to just put ourselves in this scene and remember how strange it was. I mean, we tend to use language for it that can make it seem like a massive and powerful event. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as a king, we say. It's his triumphal entry into the city. Even if we know there are no weapons involved, I think we probably imagine a great show of force somehow, a royal leader prepared for battle. But really, this is hardly an impressive scene in Luke's depiction. A strange little procession up on the hillside with a bunch of poor people laying their clothes in the dirt for a rabbi riding on a small young horse. Jesus was tempted by power way back in the beginning of his ministry. That's where we began Lent five weeks ago, you might remember. The devil showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, Luke tells us, and said to him, you're the son of God, right? Well, who else should rule over all this? So go ahead, take it, it's yours. Jesus turned away then, of course, and his whole ministry ever since has been a consistent rejection of the idea of power over others. Jesus came as a companion, a healer, a teacher, a servant. He came as one without power, spending his life among the poor, lifting up others rather than elevating himself. Jesus has always rejected the notion of power over others and nothing is different here on Palm Sunday. Sure, he's using images common to powerful kings but he has no intention of using their techniques or seeking their kind of power. He's got no weapons, no armor, no force behind him. Only what he has always had. Boundless compassion and boundary-breaking love. This image of Jesus, riding toward the seat of power with absolutely no show of power himself, is a strange one. And I also think it is a perpetual challenge to Christians. I mean, it's only natural to want your tradition to be impressive, right? To be significant, to be influential in the world. It's only natural to want it to be powerful in some way. But 
history tells us just how dangerous that desire is. Henry Nouwen puts it this way. This is a long quote, but it's worthwhile, so stay with it. One of the greatest ironies in the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power. Political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of gospel is the greatest of all. We keep hearing from others as well as saying to ourselves that having power, provided it's used in the service of God and your fellow human beings, is a good thing. With this rationalization, crusades took place, inquisitions were organized, native peoples were enslaved, positions of great influence were desired, Episcopal palaces, splendid cathedrals, and opulent seminaries were built, and much moral manipulation of conscience was engaged in. Every time we see a major crisis in the history of the church, we always see that a major cause of rupture is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. End quote. They're strong words, but they're true. They are a reminder to be suspicious of any leader rallying forces to make Christianity more powerful. Lord knows those leaders are out there today, seemingly everywhere you look. Nowen's words are also a reminder to be suspicious of ourselves. Because when we are bemoaning declining numbers in churches, or wistfully thinking of another time when Christianity was closer to the center of Western societies. We may be longing for a Jesus entirely of our own making, a Jesus who is rich and powerful and very much unlike the one we actually get. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible, now and adds? Maybe it's that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. The long, painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. Jesus resisted the temptation to power from the beginning all the way to the end. And following in his footsteps means doing the same. It means setting aside the wish to be influential or important, those perennial desires of the church, for the much harder and much less glamorous task of love. Loving God, loving our neighbors, loving the earth and its creatures. That is what Jesus taught his followers to do. And that is what we're here for, friends. Not for power, but for love. That is what we see in the spectacle of Palm Sunday. Not a conquering army, not a crusade, not an impressive display of power over others, but love. Love for the ragtag group of followers, Love for the city that knew so little of peace. Love for the world still mired in its love of power and control.
Jesus rode on, empty of all but love, and he calls us still to follow. Thanks be to God. Amen.